Welcome to episode five of Between Two Docs. Straight talk from two doctors, no politics, no hysteria. We're taking on COVID in real life and in your questions. The questions and feedback have been much appreciated. Please keep them coming. As usual, we have a three-segment show. First, we're going to dive into some current news topics that folks are talking about. In our second segment, we have an interview with uh, Mr. Tom Degnan, who battled COVID-19 and survived. And then we're going to wrap up with addressing a few questions that you, our viewers, sent to us this week. So we're going to go ahead and start out with uh, Dom's uh, news story or stories of the week uh, in our first segment. Okay. So uh, one of the the stories actually came as a question from a a colleague, a friend of mine uh, yesterday, and it was about the first lung transplant that was done in the United States for COVID. Um, And then this has already made it around social uh, media. You've seen pictures of uh, the two lungs next to each other. One on the left is quote unquote normal and the other one on the right is quote unquote COVID lung. Um, And there's a little bit more to the story. So uh, for one, this was put out more more or less as a news release, uh, press release from the uh, hospital where this patient who is 20 years old had the lung transplant. And from what they released, you know, the devil's always in the details. Um, the patient, uh, we don't know their entire medical history, but they were on an immune suppressant regimen for some type of baseline condition. Um, they had COVID uh, for uh, around six weeks, persistent with progressive respiratory failure. Um, and in the span of that, there were also superimposed bacterial pneumonias. So um, this was not pure COVID alone. And when you look at that lung, on the right of the picture that's been circulating. Uh, it's got a bunch of uh, blebs or bubbles in it. It looks gray and it's filled with a lot of, um, looks like thick mucoid material. Um, that is not the classic COVID lung. Um, that likely represented some of these superimposed bacterial uh, components. And she may have had some lung abscesses where lung just gets destroyed and you have these big cavities that open up. Uh, the lung on the left was supposed to be normal lung, but is not entirely normal lung. Uh, for one, it's removed from the body, so it will look a little bit different. But um, the, having actually seen lungs attached to people doing things like thoracoscopy, which I did earlier in my career, we would go into the chest wall with a camera and we'd uh, look at the positioning of the lung between the, the ribs. The lung is actually a bit more pinker. Um, and it's not red and blotchy like that. So uh, I just want to give perspective because this stuff goes around and people will assume it to be, oh, I saw it, that picture, it must be the way it is. And it's not really uh, entirely like that. So I'm happy to see that we've had our first transplant in the US to help someone. Uh, It's been done in other countries uh, prior to this post COVID for different reasons. I think China was actually the first one to do it in March. and, and then the, the, the other part of the news that I just wanted to touch on was um, the states are continuing to see, some states are continuing to see rise of numbers. We've all seen this in, uh, in COVID news reports this week. Um, what does it mean? Well, the thing that we have to look at is, is it causing an increase in hospitalizations and ICU bed utilization? Um, Dr. Cohen touched on this in his uh, Wednesday evening um, uh, Facebook Live, and I think it's a very good valid point because if it's just that we're testing more and the numbers are going up because we're testing more and people are less symptomatic, asymptomatic, uh, and pre-symptomatic, as Dr. Cohen will talk about in a moment, then that's not as necessarily concerning. However, if hospitalizations are increasing and ICU beds 
uh, utilization is increasing. That is where you get to the concern of not going back to where we were back in like March and April in cities like New York um, and, uh, and Philadelphia. So that's the thing to keep into perspective. Um, you know, don't get scared alone by the numbers, but look, look a little deeper. Uh, and that's a good turnover now to Dr. Cohen for uh, a little bit what's, what's this asymptomatic, pre-symptomatic we've been hearing about. Yeah, the, the news item for me, which was probably the news item for most of you, is the initially, I think it was Monday, uh, the World Health Organization, the WHO, there was a bl blip from their news conference, which basically said, I'm going to paraphrase it, is that asymptomatic spread of COVID-19 or SARS-CoV-2 appears to be rare. Uh, that was then walked back the next day and they said, we didn't mean that. So let's break down the statement a little bit and just give you a better concept of what's, what, what do they mean by all this? So this week, the, the, the jargon words of the week were asymptomatic and pre-symptomatic. So asymptomatic spread of any disease is transmission of the disease by people who don't have symptoms and they're never going to get symptoms. So they're carrying, they're infected carriers, they can still get other people sick but they will never have symptoms either while they're spreading it or further down the line. So that's asymptomatic spread. Then the phrase pre-symptomatic spread entered our cultural lexicon, and that's the transmission of virus by people who they don't look bad, they don't feel sick, but eventually they're going to get symptoms. So they also can infect others without knowing it. So people who are pre-symptomatic are asymptomatic. But people who are asymptomatic may not be pre-symptomatic, so if that makes any sense. Sort of like that thing you learned in grade school where every square is a rectangle, but a rectangle is not a square. So what the WHO is trying to say is that most spread of this is probably not from healthy asymptomatic people. Probably true. It is probably coming from pre-symptomatic people who are carrying larger viral loads who are going to go on to get sick or people who are sick. That's where our concern is. So, you know, we're, we're, we talk about these super spreader events and we can talk about that in another time. There's definitely something here where people are spreading this disease without knowing it in much greater risk than other people. So, and you can't tell who those people are. So it all gets back to whether you're asymptomatic, presymptomatic or symptomatic is practicing social distancing and washing your hands and wearing masks. And then you don't have to worry about what category you fall into, but it's tough when the news on a Monday leads to 1,300 texts saying, hey, doc, you can't spread this if you're asymptomatic. I'm going to the grocery store without a mask and I'm going to the pool. We have to be very careful with our headlines. So I wanted to talk about that a little bit. It was walked back. Common sense needs to prevail here. So that was my news item of the week. Okay, for our next segment, we are very pleased to have special guest today, Tom Degnan. He's a local product. He grew up in the Willow Grove area, he graduated from Archbishop Wood, class of 1989, then went on to do his undergraduate studies at Penn State. Tom's had a career in beer. Uh, I'm very envious of that. He uh, started out at Pete's Wicked Ale, moved on to Saranac, and now he's been with Heineken uh, Sales Operations. Uh, he's, he's been in that department for some time. He's been with Heineken for 20 years now. So uh, I want to welcome Tom, and you know his story really resonated with Dr. Valentino and myself, and that we're all sort of the same age. I mean, Tom's much older, obviously, but um, you know we're almost <laughs> looking in the mirror, uh, young-ish, healthy guy, and I think his story is a telling one. So I, I just want to launch out uh, with the first question, you know, about about COVID and you, Tom. Is you know how did your symptoms initially present, 
And what did you do about seeking care initially? Did you ignore it? Were you like, oh my gosh, I have COVID? You know, how did, well, how did it start for you? Yeah, great question. So it's great to be with you guys. Thanks for giving me the opportunity to talk about this. I like that you said I'm young-ish, Harris. I like that. That's pretty good. But, uh, but thank you for the opportunity. Um, so to answer your question, I think it's interesting because as I look back at it now, I didn't even know what my initial symptom was. So I got, or I didn't know it was a symptom, I should say, because I got sick on March 16th. And that's right when it had started to hit our country, right? So there was so much uncertainty at that time and everything had not been shut down. So I was still working out. I was still going to the gym. I was doing boot camp and um, spin and boxing and the classes that I do there. And about five days before I got sick during my workouts, I kept noticing this shortness of breath and it got worse and worse. And my girlfriend noticed it. She's like, are you okay? I'm like, I don't know. I don't know what's going on. And like you kind of just started to hear about COVID in the background. And I'm like, but no, I feel great. Like I feel really good. It's just, I don't know, understand the shortness of breath only when I'm working out. Right. So I kind of was like, let me see what happens here. Um, and then on the, the day I got sick, I worked out that morning and the breathing was really bad. And I was like, okay, but I stopped the workout. And again, I felt like you feel after a workout, I felt great. Went on with my day, got my hair cut, went to work, had dinner with, with my girlfriend. Um, and that night, as I was driving home, I started to cough. Just, I'm like, okay, what's going on here? And then literally within 90 minutes, I had every symptom that you read about, right? So from cough, my fever went right to 102, 103. Um, insane body aches. I mean, unlike I've ever dealt with before. I mean, for me, it was like I've had the flu, I think, once or twice in my life. It was like the flu times two. Uh, the body aches were, were really, really bad. They were the initial symptoms um, that hit me in like the first, you know, within 90 minutes and then the first 24 hours. Um, and the cough was just pounding and pounding and pounding. Then you add the fever, you add the body aches. Um, and then kind of as time went on in the coming days, I got hit with extreme exhaustion, brain fog, um, and dehydration was really a big thing for me. I was, I was surprised how dehydrated I was. Um, and to answer your question, Harris, did like, of course I was kind of in denial, right? And it was just such an interesting time because it had just hit the country. I'm like, really? Could this be? Do, do I have COVID now? The two weeks prior, I was on airplanes, I was in hotels, I was in New York, right? So I was kind of thinking. And my girlfriend is a nurse practitioner, and she's like, I think you have this, right? Right? And I was like, okay, wow. Um, so I called my primary care provider. Um, they did not want to see me in person at that time. So it was teledoc. I had the symptoms, go get a test, um, went and got tested. And it was a week before I got the results back at that time. So yeah, and, there and it that, was in limbo for a week. That, that, um, that dives us into the next question, which is, so from that point, you, you I guess there was a window there where you're waiting for your results. Tell me about the treatment uh, or what you were getting or taking. I realize it was March. I mean, there's not a whole lot of stuff that we were knowing yeah. about, but just tell me what that experience was and what do you think worked for you? What didn't work? Yeah. Um, and it was, it was an interesting time. And Harris, I think I shared with you some videos that I had made because I wanted people to understand because there was so much out there at the time about it wasn't really specifics about symptoms because for me i'm thinking like okay i want to know what's coming next or what's going to happen here so so i shared a lot of detail um on my symptoms and then kind of what i did to treat them and you know really it was just over the counter flu medication right um it was it, early on at least it was 
NyQuil and DayQuil to help knock the fever down, and it did. But it was interesting because as soon as that would wear off, the fever would spike back up. I mean, I, I had night sweats for a good 10 days. I mean, I'd wake up with my shirt soaked. Um, but, but the basic over-the-counter flu medication originally worked. But the cough, I mean, had gotten so bad. We've all had those coughs probably. Like my ribs were hurting, my back was hurting, my body was in so much pain from the fever and the cough that eventually I started to take the the cough medicine with codeine in it, um, which really, really helped me to get some sleep. I mean, that coupled with a little bit of NyQuil, um, you know, it really enabled me to start to get some rest. Um, and then as it, it went on, um, the cough, it just, it was just persistent. I mean, I was sick for six weeks. So I was, I had symptoms for six weeks and I eventually started to try albuterol, which is an inhaler. Um, which, and I can talk more about that in recovery, which didn't really help me to the degree that I kind of hoped it was. It was really over-the-counter flu medication. Okay. So you were, I mean, you were sick. So obviously you weren't going to work. Your, your girlfriend, luckily, is in the medical field. How did, I mean, you were like case zero, you know, of our- 180. I think I was 180 in PA. Which is, which is nuts. What, what, yeah. what, what did people do to, I mean, you're a young, healthy guy with, I'm sure, a lot of friends and neighbors and family. What did people do to support you? Were they scared of being near you? Were people dropping off soup with, uh, with matzo balls? <laughs> what, what were they doing to, to, to rally around you? Because people yeah. probably felt scared, but yeah. they also felt empathy because you're like us. Yeah, it was, it was, it was interesting because I was scared as well, right? Because it was a week of not knowing. And then once I knew, you guys know the coverage on the TV is that on that time was about death and everything. So I'm sitting there, I'm watching the TV, I'm quarantined. So I'm, I'm, uh, I don't have children, I live alone. So I'm like, oh my God, what is going to happen here? What's going to happen next? But I got to tell you, thankfully, and you know, I would, I would suggest that people be mindful of this if you do live alone or if you're with family to think about how you're going to get some degree of care when you're quarantined in your house alone and people can't come in. So lucky enough, I'm surrounded by great girlfriend, great family, um, great friends, all who were unbelievably supportive in, I didn't have these things really. I don't get sick that much. So I didn't have NyQuil. I didn't have the cough medicine with codeine. I didn't have kind of the food and I had no appetite at all. I probably lost about 10 pounds. I mean, so uh, once, you know, so it was just kind of soup, but they drop it off at my back door. We talk on the cell phones through the glass door. I did that with my girlfriend for six weeks because that's how long I was quarantined for, which was a, a bummer, but, um, but it really helped. I mean, it really helped to have them come by, to visit, to check in on me, to see how I was doing to the best of their ability. So, so then that takes us to our last question, which is, um, you know, having gone through this and from the patient perspective, it's, it's helpful to, for people to hear. Would you share anything now about the recovery, uh, what people should think about? And then even now as we're getting out, you know, it's summertime, uh, you know, COVID may be a little bit more on, on the second or third page of the news now. Um, it's still there. This is still going on in the community. What would you share about, you know, prevention? Yeah, it's interesting. So with prevention for me, that I, I, I really believe that my kind of physical condition helped. I'm not an Olympic athlete, right? I like an occasional burger and a beer, especially given that I work for a beer company, I hope so. But I do take pretty good care of myself. I exercise regularly. Um, I do 280-mile bike rides a year. I hike a lot. So I really felt that that level of conditioning 
helped me with my, you hear so much about the breathing issues, right? Um, and I, my breathing issues were only during exercising, not when I was walking to the bathroom or walking up and down the steps. So I, I think that's just a plug for kind of overall health and well-being, right? If whatever is going to come down the pike for you um, to be in a better shape, to be in better conditioning uh, will help. Um, one interesting thing with regards to recovery is that um, my, my primary care provider recommended that I do an IV drip, like a multivitamin IV, IV drip with it had zinc, vitamin C, vitamin D. And then he also hit me with, um, I think it's called uh, glutathione or no, uh, gluth, what, what is it you guys might know? Glutathione. Glutathione, which I guess there's some studies I'm seeing now that are coming out that says it might help. I got to tell you that, I mean, if, if I was, if I had symptoms for 37 days, I did that on the 35th day and I was better two days later. Now it could be coincidence. It could just be with my body. It could be mental. Who knows? I would have done that a month earlier for sure. And I wish that I did. If I look back on that, because for me, it felt like it put it to bed. Um, again, maybe my body was ready to put it to bed and that just gave it the extra oomph. Um, so, you know, with regards to recovery and then, when you're, I would say be patient because the other thing that's interesting too is that kind of comes and goes. Like you have days where you feel like you're better and then you have a day where it's like, oh man, like I feel like I'm going backwards and you feel better. And then, so you got to be patient, but I'd also try to get moving too, but to the degree that you feel comfortable. Um, and, and there's kind of less restrictions now. At that point, I was just afraid to leave the house, even if I could go for a walk. And I started to do some of that. I started to wear a mask and go out at night the middle of the street, not come in contact with anybody and just start to get your lungs moving, start to get your body moving. Um, so I think between movement and maybe, you know, the stuff that I had helped with the IV drip of supplements, it really made a difference for me. Um, and I would say, listen, just be cautious. I think we all agree we've got to get our society moving again to some degree, but Paris, everything you've been talking about on your awesome videos around, just be smart, wear the mask, be smart about social distancing because you know, I can tell you as a healthy guy that got this, it kicked my butt for a good five or six months. Did I ever really feel like I was in a tough spot where I needed to go to the hospital? No. My girlfriend felt like maybe she was ready to take me, but um, I don't think anybody wants to be sick for six weeks, right? Um, no, no matter how healthy you are. So I would say take it seriously and do the things that guys, guys like you are recommending. Yeah. Um, I stories uh, is it's inspirational. It's, uh, you know, it's like looking in the mirror. If I, if I was better looking, I'd be looking and having your, <laughs> but you know, from a pulmonologist standpoint and primary care standpoint, you know, Dr. Valentino sees the worst of the worst. I see guys like you a lot and your story and how open you are with it and opening up and asking our questions. I think a lot of us feel like we're a part of you. The news focuses on the nursing home folks and the older folks and a lot of the immunocompromised, but you're a guy I would have a Heineken with, you know, any day of the week. I would never drink any other beer, of course. <laughs> We've got a lot of beers in the portfolio. I know you have a huge <laughs> portfolio, yes. but we, we do appreciate you coming on and sharing your story. And, you know, maybe it'll, it'll help a few people out there who are unsure of how to proceed should they, you know, come under the, yep. the gun of COVID-19. So, Thanks yeah, and I'm, I'm happy to help. I mean, I'm on Facebook. Anybody can reach out. Anything they, they want, I'm happy to help. Just the other thing I would say to, to you guys, for the people that do get it, 
when you're in a position to give plasma, right? So I had just, just gone through that process of donating my plasma. Yeah. Um, and it just, it felt really good to kind of have gone through this. It kind of closed the loop for me. I just got a note from the Red Cross that said it went to a patient in New York uh, to help them, which was awesome. Um, so if, if, you, if you do test positive for COVID and you feel better down the road, you know, I think it's a great opportunity to give back and help those that are in a tough spot. Yeah, that, that's spot on. We're using uh, a lot of that in the hospital. We, we don't know yet the end result, but, you know, anecdotally, some people have gotten better with it and, and it makes sense from an immunologic standpoint. So I, I appreciate you plugging that because I do think it's important for those who have recovered to think about. Yeah, yeah. And, and, they, and they, they were like, hey, do you want to donate platelets while you're here? And I did that as well. So and, and <laughs> it, was, it, it was 90 minutes, right? Good. So, you know, it, so it was a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks again, Tom. We appreciate cool. your perspective. Stay well. Yeah. Great. I thanks, Tom. Be healthy. You guys are doing to keep everybody informed. It's great. Thank you. Pleasure. You're thanks, welcome. Tom. Take care. All right. Be well, guys. Let's grab that beer soon. Right? <laughs> and this takes us to the uh, questions submitted by some of our uh, viewers and followers. Um, I'm going to preempt one of the questions because I know we'll get it. Uh, our guest today did mention at the end of his segment about what he received and he mentioned an IV infusion of vitamins, including vitamin C, vitamin D. He also mentioned a supplement glutathione. Um, so uh, just a little word on that. Um, all of those things are being studied uh, individually and there is already, um, you know, an, a fair amount of discussion about the basic benefits of vitamin C, vitamin D. Um, glutathione is something um, that is uh, a bit of broadly speaking, more of an antioxidant um, that has uh, different roles in the body, um, particularly in the liver. But um, in general, I don't want people thinking that that's, you know, an approved treatment we're going out and doing. Again, you have to put things in perspective. So when Tom, our guest, um, was sick with this in, in mid-March into mid-April, again, there's a lot of things being tried just to make people better. Uh, he mentioned he was uh, dehydrated. So an IV infusion for somebody dehydrated just to restore intravascular volume is never a bad idea. It usually makes people feel good. And, you know, it's unlikely that the vitamin infusion, you know, fixed them a day later. However, it can't hurt in small supplemental doses. So we've both uh, written and talked about this in our individual um, segments about uh, vitamin C and its benefits, vitamin D. Um, and there's more to come on the studies that have already been enrolling people on this in COVID. Um, prospectively. So I think um, we'll have more comments on that in the coming months, but didn't want you to have a takeaway that I should, if I get COVID, I have to go out and get a, you know, an IV infusion of vitamins. Daily supplements are probably not harmful. Um, vitamins in too high doses, certain vitamins can cause harm or injury. Vitamin D is fat soluble. So yes, you can overdose on vitamin D, just like you could on vitamin A and vitamin E. Um, Vitamin C, while it is water soluble in very high doses, can cause kidney stones. Uh, so, you know, there, there are some potential limitations, which is why we're not just saying go out and take mega doses of these things. Um, the question submitted that I do want to hit on uh, was about the, the IgG antibody tests. You know, it's being offered, uh, some, some offices are offering it uh, through uh, testing centers such as Quest and LabCorp. Um, we've both written about this, and, and Dr. Cohen talked about it on his show this week. Uh, we have a little bit of a different take on it only because we're seeing a different patient population, uh, which is one of the reasons why we came together to do uh, a program like this. 
So from my perspective, if I've got a, a patient with chronic lung disease who has been trapped inside for a period of several months or, or, or even several weeks and they're isolated, uh, they tend to have a major effect on their, um, on their overall outlook on things. Uh, depression, anxiety can be higher. These things are already coexisting, uh, we know, in patients with chronic lung diseases. So for me, I'm doing it in, in selected patients because it, my opinion on it is that it may provide some at least short-term protection and benefit if they do have the IgG antibody and that they can get out and do more things. Why do I say that? Because we've not seen any actual patients who had COVID recovered and then get sick with it again secondarily. Um, the reinfections we've seen have probably been the people that continue to shed virus but are not actively getting sick again. So there's the difference there. The big thing is that we don't know how long the IgG antibody you develop if you beat COVID will last. Nobody knows the answer to that yet. That's gonna be something that goes out over time as we follow and it could be different in each individual. Uh, we do know from uh, SARS that the coronavirus that caused SARS, that antibody to it can last for a couple of years, but that's not across the board again. So I think that's uh, you know my perspective on it from a lung doctor. And uh, it does have some role, although again, it's, it, is it going to be the end all be all? Probably not just yet. Um, and so, uh, you know, in the same line, we'll go over to Dr. Cohen with the questions that are still coming because this is still a pandemic. It's still out in the environment. Uh, if I get infected with COVID now, what do I do? Yeah, so we're, we're still in the first wave. So, you know, we're seeing a lot of these numbers cropping up in states. We're not in the second wave, and hopefully there won't be a very large second wave, although it depends who you ask on what day, what their thoughts are on that. So we're still very much in this pandemic. And while we're getting it sort of back to life a little bit in a lot of states, which is great and needed, we still need to, you know, be, be appropriate and, and take the appropriate caution. So, you know, now that we're a little further into this, you know, the question is, you know, if I get infected, what do I do? And really the answer has not evolved that much. I mean, most people, the vast majority of people will do very well at home. Supportive care is always the key. So fluids and rest and isolation. Tylenol should be first line for fever. There were a few studies early on that raised some concerns about ibuprofen and its cousins. It is fine to use those, most likely in most people, as a second-line drug if it's safe for you to use it when you don't have uh, symptoms. So people with high blood pressure or gastric disease, stomach disease, uh, taking other anticoagulants won't be taking ibuprofen anyway. But if you take it here and there as a, supple a supplementary medicine to Tylenol for fever and aches, probably okay. Discuss with your doctor. Always reach out to your doctor. Say, hey, look, I'm feeling this way. These are my symptoms. I'm worried about COVID. Let them say, let's get you tested. If testing is going to change your clinical course, it might help. For most of you, they'll probably tell you to stay home, uh, hydrate, rest, uh, give you very strict ER precautions, meaning if you're getting shorter breath, if you're feeling really achy, if your fever is uncontrollable, you may need a higher level of care and it is very safe to go to your local emergency room. And the most important thing with all of this is isolation and self-quarantine. It's an evolving science Right now, the party line is if you are infected, you need to isolate for 10 days since the start of your symptoms, not 10 days from your positive test if you are tested, but 10 days from the start of your symptoms. In addition, you have to have three days with no fever without using Tylenol or ibuprofen and your symptoms have to be improved. So if you can satisfy all three of those, it's probably okay to reintroduce yourself back into society. Uh, 
in, in a cautious manner. Retesting is tough. There was, that was built into the guidelines before about getting a negative test. And what we've seen is that sometimes there's a persistence of positive tests for weeks and even months after being afflicted uh, with COVID-19. So precautions win the day, isolation wins the day, and you'll probably be able to stay home uh, with supportive care, but do let your doctor know. Next question that came in was, you know, for, for, for Dr. Valentino is, you know, why do we need a vaccine? Um, you know, we, we beat Ebola, we beat the swine flu without vaccines. So what's the importance of a vaccine specifically for COVID-19? Yeah, great question. And I think, you know, right now, if you've uh, looked into this, there's at least 160 different vaccines in development. Um, there's a couple of um, other uh, studies that are that are actually approaching and going into human trials. And there's some talk about, could we actually have one by December? What's the rush? Why are we doing this? So um, well, let's talk a little bit about Ebola and H1N1. So uh, H1N1 swine flu um, was something that was a pandemic around, um, I believe it was 2009. Uh, and so we didn't have an initial vaccine for that. It wasn't part of the flu vaccine we give out every year. It spread around the world. It did cause a lot of uh, injury and death more so than normal flu because it was a strain we hadn't seen before. However, um, we have several antiviral medications that help against that. Uh, Zanamivir, Paramivir, Oseltamivir, also known as Tamiflu, um, have been used with some degree of efficacy against it. And then um, they were developing uh, a, a vaccine against it in a similar way. Now, um, swine flu is still out in the environment, except it doesn't cause the pandemic uh, type of illness across the globe because many more people are now either immunized to it um, by the vaccine, have had it, um, and or if you get uh, severe flu, we have more options to treat it with. So that's flu, the H1N1. Ebola is a completely different animal as we brought up last week. Ebola um, is something that has historically had a 75% mortality rate. That means uh, three out of every four people who got it would die. Um, it is, it's not really a respiratory illness so much. We, we went through that a little bit in our last show. Um, but when it does outbreak, you know, what can we do? Well, the last big outbreak we had was 2014, 2015. And we did get a couple cases come over to the United States, as you might remember and read about. A number of things were done and tried for them. And now since then, a lot of different strategies have been employed and, and therapies tried. There's actually uh, a multi-antibody um, uh, regimen that is an infusion that's been trialed in patients that, that get this. And again, this is being done in areas where it is endemic, typically in areas of, of Africa. And um, they actually have reported the mortality has gone down to in the 30% range. So we do have some effective strategies to treat that now, whereas 10 years ago, we did not. Um, but I wouldn't use the term beat it because if it did, God forbid, get over to shores here, um, it would be a very different thing than what we're dealing with, with, you know, coronavirus and, and COVID. So um, not all viruses are created equal. Uh, the approach to them is going to be different. And uh, in this case, uh, we, you know, most of us will agree that if we get a vaccine against COVID, it, it frees up things uh, vastly because we don't have to worry about the transmission as we've been talking about. Um, and then, you know, this, this is a, a jump into the next question. 
which is one we, we get often because now, you know, we're getting into summer, right? We're in summer. Schools are out uh, officially, even though we've been homeschooling. Schools are getting done. Um, if COVID cases do go up in mid to late summer, um, what's this going to mean for back to school planning, you know, in, in August, September? Yeah, this is, there's a lot of crystal ball questions that we get, you know, trying to look forward. And obviously, we're trying to remain optimistic uh, while cautiously uh, pessimistic. Uh, some schools, colleges, elementary schools and high schools are saying, hey, we're going full throttle ahead. You know, I'm not sure they can make that call right now in June. I think we still have, you know, three more months of data, actually two and a half months more of data. And I think some of the schools in the South start even earlier. Mm -hmm. So less time to make that decision. Uh, you know, I don't foresee the return to school being normal, uh, short of a vaccine or proven treatment. And this is, these are both unlikely to happen by August or September of this year. So, you know, we're going to rely on CDC as well as local guidance. I think you're going to see masks in school. I think you're going to see temperature checks for every student as they enter the building. I think for schools, they are going to have to have a school nurse. There's a lot of schools that are uh, under... Uh, financed that don't have school nurses and that school nurses have to be trained in isolation and contact tracing in case there is a case at the school. What I, what I really foresee is, is a hybrid schedule. So either a split day, which I think would be really hard with transportation, you know, having a half day of school or alternating days where you'll have half the class socially distanced with their teacher one day, the next day they'll be home doing uh, online or uh, live view-ins of that classroom. Uh, just to create space. You know, the problem is that's going to rely on a lot of technology. This is very problematic in areas of the country with financial strain or places with lack of Wi-Fi or computer equipment. So that's going to be very regionalized as well. I think you're going to see more outdoor activities. I think gym is going to be outside. Take your music class outside. Take your learning outside if you can to make it safer. I think the days of the central cafeteria might be gone. Maybe kids will eat in the classrooms. I think the days of assemblies might be very different. I think kids are going to have to be very spread out. We used to love going to assemblies. but take us away from our education for a little bit to watch uh, <laughs> something up on the stage. Uh, I think after school sports are going to be affected. I think buses are going to be, you know, how can you socially distance on a bus? Are they going to have more buses? Is there going to be more self-transportation? There's going to be sanitation stations. There's going to be reminders to wash your hands, you know, especially with the little ones, you know, kindergarten through fifth grade. And a lot of high schoolers forget to wash their hands too. But again, this is going to be more to protect teachers and staff than the kids. Kids luckily have gotten through this mostly unscathed, but we have to protect the people who are more vulnerable. So no way to make a call now. We'll see what happens over the next couple months. I think school is going to be very different, but these kids do need to get back in some way, shape or form. And that's why we rely on other people to make these decisions and, uh, you know, with our guidance, obviously. But um, I think it's going to be a very different school year, but kids need to get back. So that does wrap up our Q&A section uh, for uh, next week. Uh, as we are excited to each week, we uh, plan to have a special guest. Next week, we plan to have a local funeral director, uh, John Barnes join us to discuss how COVID has impacted his work and how he has helped families who are dealing with the passing of loved ones during the past several months, unprecedented times for not only doctors, nurses, and humans, but funeral directors, and everybody's been touched by this. So I think that'll be very helpful to get that sort of guidance. Uh, please continue to send questions to between two docs, T-W-O docs at gmail.com, and we get to as many as we can each week. And we hope to maintain our weekly schedule going forward. So for Dr. Valentino and myself, we'd like to close out episode five, stay well, be good to each other, 
and we hope to see you next week at some time. Take care, everyone.